Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome back to The Plays The Thing here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I'm joined by Heidi White. Heidi, welcome back. Thanks. It's good to be back. So we are here. We've been talking about Henry V. So we're here to talk about Act 3 of Henry V. Um, I realized I put a poll up on our the Close Reads, Close Reads Facebook page to get a sense of how and when and who was listening to the Shakespeare shows. And what I sort of anticipated happening when we started this show it can't, has kind of come to fruition. That people, uh, Some people are still listening week to week with us as they did on the other show. But a lot of people are either storing it away for future reference when they teach it or are kind of jumping around a little bit. So we're not going to... I'll talk less about what's going on sort of on the network on these shows just because people don't care as much about that after listening to it two years later. (laughs) So um, we'll try to keep it just as focused on the book as possible. Um, So I won't ask you how your Christmas was, but I hope it was great. (laughs) It was great. Yes. Thanks for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks for not asking. I know, right? So we'll just dive right in. We're here to talk about Act 3. And if you have questions about this and you are reading along, we will still do a Q&A episode. So you can still send those to us at, at uh, closefreezepodcast at gmail.com or on either the Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter accounts. If you are uh, following on one of those places, please do feel free to still, still send in questions. But we'll just kind of dive right into the book. Because if you're using this as a reference when you were actually teaching it, you don't care about our pleasantries. So let's talk Act 3. And one thing I was thinking about... Well, you, you mentioned to me off the air on Slack that this act is pretty complicated. And there's a lot mm-hmm. that needs... I think your word was deciphering and that you wrote pages of notes. And I think that that is, that is true. And so I think it's true to a degree. And so I kind of want to argue with you about this a little bit. And... That's because, exciting. Because I love a, this. Yeah, a good argument is is like... You know, That's right. Fodder for ratings. Fodder, fodder, yeah, fodder for a good <laughs> show. Um, and if people are listening to this with their students, hopefully we can uh, make sure that this is... It's, it's a pleasant argument. You mentioned that you think that this this act... And we'll just dive right into this question. That it needs... You need some deciphering. And I guess my question is, what do you mean by it needs some deciphering? And it needs some deciphering to what end? 
Sure. What did you mean I, by that? Right. Well, what I meant by that is that they're, you know, unless you're very, very familiar with, let's say, late medieval Welsh dialects, you might miss <laughs> some of the humor. Or French. In this, yes. Or if you don't speak French, or if you're not familiar with the geography of the Battle of Agincourt, then... Those are that's the kind of deciphering I meant that there is some specialized knowledge to get maybe not to let's say this the once more into the breach dear friend speech the very famous speech that Henry V gives in scene one you don't necessarily need you know anybody to hold your hand if what he's saying mm. at that point but mm. there are some key points in this act that if if you don't have some kind of specialized knowledge you might miss it uh, although you can still kind of get the gist. Mm-hmm. Of maybe of what's going on. Yeah. So I take it you're prepared to be the specialist because I don't care about Welsh dialects. <laughs> well, kidding. I know very little about Welsh dialects, <laughs> but I do know how to open up a Shakespeare commentary and look up <laughs> why are all the B's printed as P's in this you edition? You wanted to in, in do some version. work, huh? Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. So there's there's just some things like that that in this particular act that may people might feel on their back foot or behind, or like they don't know what's going on that um, uh, kind of to get to the, the, the real meat of some of these scenes. I, I, I think it's worth exploring some mm-hmm. of those little things. Okay. So here's my question, I suppose, or a, here's a question. I don't want to, I, I try to avoid this show focusing too much on like what, what does what would you do about teaching this hmm. this play? Because I, I want people to be able to enjoy it even if they're not teaching it. And I think if we talk about it outside of that, you can still apply it to teaching. But when would you introduce that specialized content to your students? Say you're teaching 10th graders, you're teaching medieval history or a, lit- or a literature and history course combination, or you're just reading this for its literary, you know, that for the literary benefit or because you saw or for yourself, whatever it is, when would you introduce that specialized knowledge to your students? I think as I was, I, I always teach Shakespeare by reading it aloud with my students. So if I was say reading, is it scene two when Fluellen comes into that's, that's right. Isn't it scene two when they introduce captain Fluellen, who's a Welsh yeah, guy. Yeah, he, he jumps in with Bardolph on those guys. Yes. So yeah. at that point, as the student who was assigned to to read that part aloud, when he got to, say, a, one of the lines in which he says the bees like peas, which is a Welsh dialect thing, then I would say that I would just point it out, like, just pause real quick. This is why you're saying it like this. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't make a big deal about it right on the board. It would just be a simple verbal... Dir- in bed, you know, stage direction, so mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and then I would just move on because that's not the point of the scene. We're not teaching Welsh dialects to your point that you brought up oh. earlier. Yeah. And it, but we do want to give them those clues so that they can fully enter into the enjoyment of it. You brought up, and I agree with you that we don't, we're not here to teach people how to teach these plays, but in order to teach effectively, you you should love the play or at least get the play, right? And so yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping that through some of these podcasts uh, to awaken a love for the history plays and our listeners and so that then when they teach it, they can, they can give that simple verbal direction to their students or even to themselves and that then kind of chuckle as they're reading it instead of being confused. Yeah. One thing I, I that, that what you're saying there um, kind of reminds me of is that those 
if you think about it from the perspective of someone who's sort of crafting a play or a story or a movie or a screenplay, whatever it is, those are the kinds of things that for the artist are, are little tidbits of characterization. You know, they're not there to make some sort of a point. They're there to be, to either allow us to get to know a character more richly, more deeply, you know, to get to better, to better know them. Or they're there simply to be true, right? To be this guy's Welsh, so he would speak this way. And that does both of those things, I think. Um, rarely does a good artist sit there and think, if, well, except maybe Anne Rand, right? Well, then maybe, I don't know, but maybe she's <laughs> not overthinking a little yeah. bit, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, rarely is, is it meant to make some kind of a, you know, we're not trying to make some sort of like point. Shakespeare wasn't trying to make some sort of point about, about Welsh people and that he's simply trying to offer us some characterization. And I think that doing it the way you're talking about there, uh, allows the students to kind of get to know the character in the world. It's there's even in a little thing like that, there's world building going on and that's the mark of a great artist in some ways. Absolutely. Yes. And I, I I mean, I think you and I, we've talked about this on the show before and off the air, and this is a big conversation among literary people. What, if you are, if you are a bookish sort of person, what do you need to know? What tools do you have to have in your tool belt in order to read effectively, which is a a little bit of a, a, even just saying that I feel I cringe a little bit, right? Because we read for enjoyment. Like I read out of pure love of the thing itself. I actually just love this play. And the more that I know about it, the more I love it. But there's, do you really need to know about the Welsh dialect thing? No, it just makes it a little bit more richer and to your point, characterizes a little bit more. It's it's not really for knowledge sake, but for enjoyment, for delight. Mm. Yeah, you know, I think that's one of the, I think we spend sometimes, whether it's on close reads, just in general, we spend so much time thinking about approaches to literature, so to speak, like capital A, capital L, you know, approaches to literature. Um, right. The concept of what is a literary reading and all that. And now I, I, we, I just had a, I just recorded close reads like literally minutes ago with Angelina and Adam. We talked for, for at length about the concept of literary reading. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't think about that, but I think sometimes we don't spend enough time on the concept of, of reading for delight, which is even something C.S. Lewis spends a ton of time talking about, right? That that one of the reasons that literature um, per, persists, I suppose, both mm-hmm. in a culture and in the life of a reader is the sense of delight that it offers. You know, it's the famous thing you can never get. I've got a poster right in front of me that says it. We have a close reads branded poster. It says, you cannot get a cup of tea large enough or a book long enough to suit me. Right. By C.S. Lewis. And for him, the as much as anything, the value of literature was to offer delight. And it delights for many reasons. It doesn't, it can delight because of the things that it's doing literarily, you know, but we, I think, I think that Shakespeare in particular can often get, uh, we can often, we often don't pursue the delight, if that makes sense. Right. Yes. Like we over intellectualize it, right? Yeah. Yeah, What is, Yes, like what is Shakespeare trying to say here? What point is he making about Welsh people through this character? Yeah, Which yeah. in many ways this character is just pure delight. He is he's just funny and he's he's thrown into the midst of this very intense situation building towards battle and he make cracks a couple jokes and he kind of after the the uh the low life characters of Nim and Bardolph who in this in this particular act are very exposed for their 
uh, cowardice and thievery, mm-hmm. right? He's a common man who is virtuous and courageous and also just kind of funny. Mm-hmm. And so that, but those little clues about why is he saying his bees like peas? That's not for the sake of getting to know, you know, the, the intellectual nature of Shakespeare's mm-hmm. structural decisions in act mm-hmm. three, but it just gives you another layer of enjoyment and yeah. fun yeah, and there is something I like that decoding thing too. I like that. Oh, yeah. well, that yeah, yeah, helps yeah, me understand, sure, yeah. like that yep. sense of accomplishment internally that I feel when I grasp something. Yeah, it helps you pursue the, the delight. Yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. and that's what literature is for. So I'm not a. I, I do not think that people need to have specialized literary scholarly knowledge to read great books, but I am. But it helps. I, yeah, I think it's fun. Yeah, and I think that um, you know when you're talking about teaching it you know, the classroom is a sort of sacred place with a certain sort of set of expectations. And so your approach is, the way you approach it should be carefully considered. And, you know, there's each classroom is going to have, each classroom, each educational setting is going to have some specific purposes that it's after. Um, And so, you know, I'm not saying that we should ask our students that we should only be thinking about, you know, our students' delight or we should be saying, you know, how do you feel about this? And that's like the preeminent question. I'm not saying that at all, but I do think that we as teachers in the way that we're approaching literary reading and the way we're teaching it ought to be keeping in mind that one of our goals should hopefully be to help our students delight in it in things that they may, that that they may not delight in now, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. we're not asking them to feel good or bad about it per se, but we're asking them, we're trying to help cultivate their, um, the things that they delight in, right? We're trying to help cultivate delight in them in the right sorts of things. So right. that's why I talk about the idea of pursuing the delight. Like it sounds kind of silly, but we can help our students, pers- we can help pursue delight in the right things with our students. Does that make sense? Right. I mean? Absolutely. I agree with that completely. And I think great books are one of the best ways to do that. Yeah. Um, along with, I mean, this, that's, this is beyond the scope of this podcast, but <laughs> something like having them develop because the, reading great books is a skill. It is a skill that leads to delight, but mm-hmm. you don't read a great book the same way you read a comic book or the mm-hmm. same way you read a cheap historical romance about Henry the mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that there is the sense of build skill and knowledge building on each other to kind of take you into the heart of a book. And mm-hmm. I think that that is in itself part of the cultivation of wisdom and virtue is not air quotes getting the meaning of Henry V, but being the kind of person who's willing to put in the work as a teacher or a student to go into the heart of of, of a work like this that does take some deciphering. Hmm. Um, and the, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I, the delight question is always a tough one on this on on these shows for me because if it were just me, one of my favorite ways to start a conversation about literature, even in the classroom, and I know people would ju- some people would judge me for this, is to basically say, you know, what are the passages that sang to you? Mm. You know, what are the passages that 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 you read that you did a double take on? You know, we call those highlighting in blues, right? My dad's highlighting system that we right. have on here. We we sell people when something really sings to you. you, you he always used to tell us if, if you if you could see it in a commonplace book or on a poster on the wall, highlight it in blue. And I think that you know it, it allows us. It's what's not us saying when we talk about those those things that saying to us those passages. It's not us saying these are 
this is how I feel about the book. It's us saying, it's us starting with that sense of delight. Like what passages saying to you for some reason? And when you start deciphering why you took delight in something, it begins, you begin necessarily to begin thinking about the nature of the work itself. You're not, mm-hmm. it's not, you're not just thinking about why it meant something to you, but it forces you to think about what is it that is delightful about the work itself. And so right. when you start there, it can take you deeper. Um, so, you know, I know some people, disagree with me on that on that sort of approach and you know that's fine we can argue about the merits of it other times so if people want to come at me on social media i'm all you know i'm never one to back down from social media fight about books but um i and it's and it's and what i try to tell people is is when i do that with my with my students or even in my own reading and i'm trying to get at the bottom of something in my own reading it's not that i'm trying to get them to just solely express how they feel about something it's that i'm trying we're trying to figure out what delights me now why? What is it about the book that made that passage stand out? You know, what is the role of that passage in the work? Uh, and then, what does it also say about me? You know, part of it is it, I can learn to understand myself better by reading great books. You know, by reflecting on truths in them, um, and so that allows me a context to dive in deeper—a context where my students and and I myself already care about it. You know, and maybe by yes. the end of it, I won't think that that's. That passage is as meaningful as I thought of, I thought it was originally, or maybe I'll realize, oh, I read that completely wrong. You know, we're doing Great Gatsby on the other show, and there's a lot of lines. <laughs> actually, oh man, I, I think I posted this in the Close to Reads email newsletter, but there was a royal wedding recently, not the royal wedding, but a royal wedding where during the ceremony they read passages from the Great Gatsby, and they were completely taken out of context, and thus, while they seemed maybe fitting, they were completely not fitting. <laughs> Right. So, some, mm-hmm. so the Guardian did a big write up about that. And so sometimes you might see that, you might think at first that a passage delights you for some reason. But then as you begin to think about the passage and, you know, in within the larger context of the book, you realize, whoa, that's not what that meant. And that shouldn't delight me in that way, or, or it should delight me for a different reason. Right. So or something else. Us, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Something else awakens. Um, a delight in a new way opens up a new avenue for yeah, it's an it. Echo. It creates an echo. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which you know the Charlotte Mason idea of the education is the science of connections, right? As yeah. we read relations, yeah, great yeah. books. Well, yeah. yeah, science of relations. Even yeah. in this speech in the prologue, I had never noticed. Like this is something really simple, but I had I had never noticed that um, the the the. Sherlock Holmes line is in this speech in the prologue, the games afoot. Mm. I didn't know that. Mm. And I was delighted by that. I thought that was so great. So there's just these little things you notice every time you read a work. And, and when you hear other people talk about it and you talk about it with other people, people add knowledge upon knowledge. We all read differently on this show and learn from each other. So anyway, and people take Shakespeare out of context all the time. You know, that whole thine own self be true line. People love that line, but it's, it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean what, what modernity wants it to mean, but that's okay. Right. It gets people connected and reading and, and then you add layer upon layer the next time you read Hamlet and and, and whatever. So all that I think is really fun. Well, let's, let's dive in using some of what we're talking about here because There, because it's a, a, there's a whole act in here that it's in French that you have to, if you don't know French, you have to read the notes to understand any of it. Because there's a whole bit, there's whole large swaths of it that are in 
<laughs> unintelligible Welsh. Um, I'd say that, you know, with uh, great respect for all the Welsh listeners <laughs> um, who speak Shakespearean age Welsh still. Um, there's, there's a lot going on here that's very complicated. I would actually love to start with a couple of passages or two that, that are passages that we both find delightful because I think that we can, that's a great way to enter into it, especially when there are passages that are indecipherable. <laughs> Right or do demands and specialized knowledge. I think we can go from one to the other. So, is there are there any lines or or any passages that particularly stand out to you in this in this Act Three? And just to summarize, in Act Three, we're kind of on the verge of battle. There's a lot of posturing going on, um, and then in between that, there is the scene with the French princess, or yeah, French princess, and mm-hmm. uh, and then the scene with Bardolph where they have to decide what to do with him because he was a thief essentially. Um, so there's, there's there's certainly themes that run through all these these scenes that we'll get at. But are there any line? And I'm talking now, so you can find make sure you find right. One. I appreciate that. Thanks. Uh, I'm just kind of mumbling on on and yeah. on and on. So I don't know. I'm I almost started to say I don't know if this counts, but I mean it totally counts because I am about to take the floor and say it. So um, <laughs> the, um that what I love about this whole this act my very favorite moment is just a really tiny little thing and this is the first time i saw this play i didn't read it first i saw the film version with brana and this little moment just captured my heart it is when he tips it's in what which scene is it hold on is it scene uh, seven wait no i think it's in earlier six, it's scene five or six, six. Yeah, it's six. It's when he tips Montjoy. The yeah, yeah. um, yeah, the delivery. I keep wanting to say delivery boy, but he's not. He's a messenger. One fifty six. Yes, when he tips him after Montjoy has come and given him, basically refused his request to take his army to Calais and told him that they're going. He and his demoralized sick, weak, diseased army, small, tiny little army that's been traveling and uh, is going to have to go to battle the next day. And he thanks him for his service and gives him a tip. I love that. It just mm-hmm. captures my heart. I think it's delightful. What, what, um, I mean, besides the fact that, oh, this is a generous Henry, what, why, why does that delight you? I mean, like, yeah, because because it's a play about war and they're not fighting. I mean, is there what what is it about it that captures your imagination? Um, I think it's the gesture of chivalry, hmm. uh, and the the honor that he shows. I mean, Montjoy isn't he's he's the messenger to the king, so he's not necessarily a common man, but he is a man under authority, a man that could be easily dismissed by the king. Right. Tell your master, blah, 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 could have been the response um, mm. with. Uh, so for him to be so honoring for him to ask him his name, um, you know, of course, the, those who decry Henry say he just did it for show. But I and but, you know, I like Henry. I'm a Henry fan. And so I see it as a chivalrous gesture and I just love it. I love how there's that could be totally in my own head about this, but I love how in Henry, there's a sort of under, um, understatedness, maybe probably it's just how I read it, but there's an understatedness in his, the way he threatens the French, the way he kind mm-hmm. of promises 
battle. <laughs> in <laughs> which know? scene are you talking about? Well, I, I mean, I think in some ways throughout, but in particular in this scene, because he says, um, yet God before, tell him we will come on. Though mm-hmm. France himself and such another neighbor stand in our way. There's for thy labor, Montjoy. He gives him a purse. Go bid thy master well advise himself. If we may pass, we will. If we be hindered, we shall your tawny ground with your red blood discolor. It's like, it, 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 he says it in the sort of matter of fact, understated way that we're going to slaughter you. <laughs> and they, yeah. after giving him this kind gift. And it's like, I, I sometimes wonder if maybe Henry says what he knows he needs to say. It doesn't necessarily give him pleasure to say the things that he says. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's one of the great things about Henry, the great complicated things about this character that we don't necessarily, you know, Shakespeare doesn't make us clear, make it clear for us exactly how Henry feels about this whole process. And in mm-hmm. fact, in act four, we're going to find that it's all, he's very torn about the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I, I love that, that in some, he can make these threats, but it's not clear exactly what his, what his, what, what's happening inside him as he makes these threats. Right. He is always, always under control. Mm-hmm. He is, and he, and, and the reason I asked what, which scene you're talking about is I agree with you. In this scene, he is very restrained. His language about the war, his threats are very restrained. Uh, however, earlier in the scene at Harfleur, he is like brutal with his language about what he's going to do to this city if Chocolate they try 3. to resist. 3. Yes. Yeah. And that is always talked about and in terms of those who the the henry detractors always point to that speech at the gates of harfleur when he's like i'm going to kill all your virgins i'm going to impale your babies on spikes i'm going to slaughter everyone that we're all gonna the ground's gonna run red with your blood and that that brutality of his language about war in that scene versus the one that you talked about does go to show it it shows it demonstrates that he is constantly under control and that he's constantly fitting the word to the occasion and the action to the occasion. Yeah. I was going to say that there's this, he, the way he's speaking to the messenger, the French messenger is uh, it's a different setting than, than when he's speaking to the governor of this city, you know, there, mm-hmm. if he does, you can't, it seems as if he knows you have to press in a very specific way to get them to surrender, right? Right. If you're just like, you know, a little less nonchalant about it, so to speak, then how likely is it to, that you're going to get what you and he, and he, get what you need to happen? He knows the state of his army, right? Right. And and then with he can be much more sort of cordial, much more chivalrous mm-hmm. with this messenger. Um, right. And I think that there's something about the messenger sort of being the go-between between these two armies, that he has this sense of uh, cordiality to the go-between. I think that there's something telling, there's something sort of rich about that um, mm-hmm. in terms of how he understands the way war works. Um, you don't ever get the sense that, I don't even, even in that thing where you say he's a little more unhinged in 3-3, you don't get, I don't personally get the sense that he is out of control. No, never. He's always that, in control. What saying? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I think he's always, in fact, he knows he what he's t- saying. Well, he took an entire city with a speech. That's a remarkable thing, right? It's, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I'm, I want to 
talk about that scene. It's yeah, let's do it. Pretty, it's it's pretty well known. It's one of those. This is one of those speeches three three. This is one of those things that in the play that scholars always point to and talk about and debate about. And what do you think about this speech? And blah blah. Um, does it show Harry's? Henry's ruthlessness? Does it show his humanity? Is this him angry? Is this what's going on here? So I'm very curious about the fact that he comes in with his army and takes an entire city with words. Mm. That's it. There's not nothing. There's no battle on stage. You could say that that's because Shakespeare couldn't stage a battle. And so he gave him like this brutal speech to kind of take the place of battle and sure, I'll buy it. But that is a well. So what? Right. <laughs> That's that remarkable. <laughs> he came to the city gates and made threats and and took the city. That's. That's leadership. So you're saying that somebody worked within <laughs> yeah. the limitations of the form that they had, exactly. and then they made something good. Yes. All right. Cool. Yes. So you can go to like the theater narrative again. All of the prologues have an apology that um, on stage they couldn't. Uh, you know, really show the true gravity of the action. That's how the pro. That's how every act begins. Yeah, I want to talk about that in a minute. Yes, I do too. That's a really. I I love that about this play. That there's so much going on. There's this meta narrative about the nature of theater, which all of Shakespeare's plays have. Right? What is what can theater do, and what can it not do, and what's real and what's not real about what's going on on stage. So that's always a meta narrative of any Shakespearean play. Uh, so you can talk about that forever. One of the things that that I think you're speaking to, though, is like is is you know evidenced in the conversation itself. Okay, because it builds this like his threat sort of build to the crescendo that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Right. So it builds to the thing about um, mowing like grass, your fair, your fresh, fair virgins, and your flowering infants. Um. Um. It, it, let's see. Where is the? the kind of like he gets more it gets more and more brutal um, it sure does your naked infants spit it upon pikes whilst the mad mothers with their howls confused do break the clouds as did the wives of jewry at herod's bloody hunting slaughterman what say you will you yield in this avoid or guilty in defense be thus destroyed so there's a lot of rhetorical things going on there you know turning it kind of turning all of that on the governor as he did with the french king and and, and the french king and the governor ultimately says all right we don't have any help, so we're going to give in. But then right after that, he also tells Exeter, immediately he says, go and enter, but be merciful. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he's not, it, he, he gets to the point that he needs to get to, and then he steps off that point. Right. Yep. He does. So this, again, to your point that you made earlier, this is evidence of Harry's of, of Henry's control. Are you talking here. about Harry? Or are you thinking? I know. I keep Potter? saying Harry. <laughs> no, I just keep calling him Harry. You're on a first name um, basis. I yeah. You know. Well, really, if I'm nicknaming, I should call him Hal. That's true. But true. I, I'm just getting it wrong. Is what's happening. So, um, Harry Henry, in Exeter. He says it later. He does. He goes. He's called Harry a couple times in this play, and he calls himself that. But still, I shouldn't say it's Henry. So um, yeah, have some respect. Thank you. Goodness. Put me in my place here. Um, yeah, he is. I mean, this is an intense speech. Well, he says, if your pure maidens fall into the hand of hot enforcing violations, what rain can hold licentious wickedness when down the hill he holds his fierce career? Right. So just 
moments before the chorus has been on stage praising the virtues of the English army and how chivalrous they are and how they are there to take back this rightful claim. And here is Henry making these brutal threats to the governor of the city. And, and, but we know that he intends, if they give in peacefully, to have mercy on them. And later on in the play, we learn they actually do. And in the historical record, we know that, that when Henry took Harfleur, they, it was a very merciful, he didn't kill people. They didn't rape and pillage. They, they came in, they sent out, they sent all of the inhabitants of the city out. They had to leave and then the English took over, but there wasn't uh, like a killing spree there. Mm. And so that, but this speech, I think, is Shakespeare playing with the power of language. Mm-hmm. And also, I think thematically, you know, I wrote in the margins that Act Three really pushes that theme of the horrors of war to the fore. But mm-hmm. it seems to do that, you know, early on, we, we get a lot about the sort of English patriotism. And so the mm-hmm. complicated nature of that comes out more and more in act three because it's, you get, you'll get the scene, the scene here with, uh, with this speech where you're talking about the horrors of war and, and Shakespeare's really offering that. And then a couple of scenes later, we get a lot of stuff about the, the sort of what does it mean to be an Englishman? Um, which is a, you know, what does it mean to be a good soldier? What does it mean to be a good King? And, and so that sort of patriot, that sense of patriotism is laced, is sort of interlocked, interlaced with, the horrors of war, making it much more complicated than it seems on the surface, I think. Yeah, I agree. Well, and the question of what to, if you, in order to be a good king, then here we have him, his word is different from his actions, right? So he is threatening all of these things and then they don't happen because he actually shows mercy. So in some sense, you can make the case that he was lying to them the whole time, but was that what being the great warrior meant? Did he save them by these brutal threats? Hmm. You know, one thing that, that comes to mind as you're saying this, and I've no, I've never read, read about this before, but I wonder if, you know, one of the things that Henry's doing there is he's playing on the imaginations of mm-hmm. the governor, right? So he and the French and whoever else, you know, the French king earlier in Act Two. He's basically saying, "Imagine all these things we're going to do to you," and then that that is what causes the, them to sort of move out of the way for him. And in the in the um, prologue in the chorus to Act Three, one of the things that really comes comes out for me is the way Shakespeare is revealing the artifice of what he's doing, the artifice of the play itself. You know, it, it, the chorus says, thus with imagined winged, and thus with imagined wing, our swift scene flies. He really brings that artifice forward. He's sort of, he's sort of relying on us acknowledging the artifice of it, right? And he's saying, this is just a play. You're going to need to imagine what's happening here. And it says, he says, um, play with your fancies and in them behold upon the hemp and tackle ship boys climbing. Hear the shrill whistle which doth order give to sounds confused, and you know, so on and so forth. So the chorus is sort of doing this for us as for the audience, especially if you're in, you know, if you're if you're if it's not a movie or something, if it's on the if it's you're at the globe, he's doing for the audience much what Henry's doing for the uh, in those you know rhetorically uh, and appealing to in appealing to this you know imagination of the governor. Absolutely. And, and so I wonder, I wonder what what Shakespeare's if this is really 
well, like a lot of his plays, if this is in large part a play about imagination and about the, the, the sort of imaginative, the role of imagination, the rhetorical role of imagination, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, yes. Go ahead. I totally agree with that. I think that this, this whole act is, is just worlds within worlds. It just does that over and over and over again. You're exactly right about the prologue. It's very imaginative, very sensory. It draws you into beautiful poetry. It draws the readers into the sensory experience of being in the army, which is different from any of the other prologues. The other prologues are very patriotic, right? They're playing on these patriotic sensibilities. But this one is, imagine that you're there. And then it gives you all of these five senses descriptions of what it would be like to be there. So it draws them into this imaginative experience and then apologizes to them in the very last two lines, yeah. right? The very last little couplet for not Still being able be to kind. do it very well, right? We can't, we know we can't do this well, which goes back then to the first prologue about the cockpit and the wooden O. And, um, you know, we're not going to be able to live up to your expectations of writing about this hero king, Henry V, that has captured the imaginations of everybody in this audience. So, uh, and part of the reason I think is in, in Act 3 is that this whole, um, this whole sequence of events that happens here of getting of Henry's army lands uh, on on the French coast, takes Harfleur, then tries to get Calais to Calais in order to, to refuel uh, and, and maybe even stay over winter. It was late October at the time. And so they were thinking they were going to have to, and the, the, they, as soon as they started sieging Harfleur, Har which took five weeks, by the way, not just a day, but took five weeks to undergo this siege. And then they, by the time Harfleur fell without bloodshed because they were starving, by that time, Henry's army was depleted by disease. And so this would have been very, very familiar to the audience. They don't necessarily need the historical background that we need in order to enter into kind of the desperation that Henry's army is in by the end of this act. There's mm. no way that they could win this battle of Agincourt. It's a miracle. Nobody knows how they won. Even now, you can look back and you can talk about how the French army was in, um, you know, they were wearing clunky armor and, you know, all the mistakes that the French army made, but still there is no reason why Henry's army should have defeated the French at this point. And so it is a miraculous event Gee. in the historical record. Uh, and the English audience would have known alert. that. Yes. <laughs> so the English, the English audience of course would have known that. And so they wouldn't, they didn't need necessarily all of the, the details that we do as the modern audience in order to enter into this this whole scene, this whole act. Um, but the idea of drawing them in in a sensory way is kind of brilliant on Shakespeare's part of imagine, you all know the facts of this battle, but imagine what it would have felt like to have been there. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, but that's, and that's sort of what Henry's saying to the governor too, right? Yes. Like rhetorically, yes. he convinces him by appealing to his imagination and saying, imagine what's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Yeah, these are all the things I'm going to do to your city and to your women and to your children if you don't give in. And he's like, okay. He paints such a I yield you picture. the city. Yeah. The governor says, I'm not taking that risk. Right. Which again goes to our, what we were talking about earlier about the control that Henry has over any given situation. He comes in and he takes control in order to accomplish his goals. Well, it's like he says in 
2.1, right? Or 3.1. He says, in peace, there's nothing so becomes a man as modest stillness and humility. But when the blasts of war blows in our ears, then then imitate the action of the tiger. So, you know, (laughs) different situations demand different things of us. You know, this is, you know, the man who is in control of himself, the man who... um, Let's see, I'm trying to figure it He stiffens the sinew, summon up the blood, disguise fair nature with hard-favored rage, then lend the eye a terrible aspect. Um, he, he, just, he talks about... Hey, this is quite the speech here. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to find the, how I was, the context for what I was going to say there, but the, he, it's just evidence of, as you said, of, Hen, of Henry's control. You know, when he, he, can, he can respond to the situation as the situation demands. And... He's, you know, there's, there's propriety, right? There's, he's even telling his own people, his own men, you're go- the true Englishman acts a certain way in, in certain times in peace. The true Englishman, uh, is modest and, and humble. And, but in war, the true Englishman is something different. And that that's mm-hmm. what kind of make that that's what makes a man. That's what makes a King is the ability to move from one of those to the other, to be able to be both, um, modestly still and humble and also to to go to war like a tiger mm-hmm. uh, that, that that balance that sort of uh that sort of ability to slide between those two things is is what makes someone i don't know if i would say chivalrous but certainly makes someone um worthy of respect and like a king you know right i i agree yep this is his i have i have the tiger speech I say once more into the breach all the time. I say that to my kid all the time. Once more into the breach, go to bed. Well, and it's obviously at the beginning of scene two, Bardolph opens up the scene with that same line, right? On, 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 on to the breach, to the breach. So this obviously did become a rallying cry for Henry's troops. So the same way it stirs our blood, it did theirs and motivated them to take the city hmm. or at least be available to take the city. They didn't end up having to attack, but they, they needed their courage at that point. You always need a stirring speech. I've been thinking about that word breach because mm-hmm. obviously it can mean a gap in a wall, like of oh, a defense, mm-hmm. which is one made by an attacking army is in the definition. So there's, there's that, there's that meaning. And then there's also the meaning according to the dictionary an act of breaking or failing to observe a law agreement or code of conduct. Huh? So given that, that's a fascinating, to me, that's a fascinating, the fascinating choice of words by Shakespeare. Cause the, wow. the, the obvious meaning in wartime of pers- breakthrough, pursue the point where they're beginning to break down, break through that hole in the wall. We're going to take the city. But could it also be having to do with that? And now I don't, I haven't looked up the etymological timing of this. Like did, what did it mean during Shakespeare's day exactly? But I wonder if it, in what way it might also have to do with that, a failing to observe a law agreement or code of conduct. Because I love like, that play Henry on is words. obsessed with codes, right? Right. Yeah. I love that play on words. I have never thought of that before. I, I, I mean, that definitely, again, if you can prove it from the text, it's a valid interpretation, whether the author intended it or not, right? So that is, I think that's brilliant. You should write about that. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. Yeah, maybe I'll write about it. <laughs> there you soon. go. I give you permission. <laughs> that's great. 
that's really good, David. And it even says that like some synonyms for that, like you, well, you talk about a breach of con, a breach of uh, confidence, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you t- you're basically talking about an infraction, a transgression, neglect. You know, you're neglecting a duty, which I think is that is in the dictionary, or did you come up with those synonyms out of your own brain? No, that was in a dictionary. Okay, good. I was <laughs> like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Infraction. <laughs> infraction but neglecting a duty right in in uh, uh even infringement is a word there that's that's kind of a legal term and i think that's really fascinating given that henry's constantly thinking about what is my duty as a king so it's like mm-hmm. it's almost like he's saying yes pursue the breach in the wall but it's also like pursue like there's also this idea of not you're doing this to avoid well maybe it's you're doing this with the question of duty hanging over you are you, huh. are you, are you, is he break, is he actually infringing upon his duty in some way by doing what he's doing or is he fulfilling his duty by, by right. entering the breach of the French wall? Right. And I, Which the, again that, is one of the questions of the play. Exactly. I mean, that's, yeah. 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 Yep. Well, that's that what would make a lot the sense. complication there. The, the, the way that he doesn't even give us the answer in that word is fascinating. The word itself doesn't give us the answer. It could mean it could mean either one of those things. It could, and it speaks to the complicated nature of what's going on in Henry's head. The question mm-hmm. of how complicated the question of duty is for him. Right. That one yes. word speaks to that. That that's the genius of it. And that's also like the poetry of it, where you know, great poetry is about the pursuit of like, I don't want to say dialectic, but it's the pursuit of echoes. Right. It's the mm-hmm. way things can mean multiple things and you put that down on, you know, the poet puts the word down on paper and it means one thing when he writes it, but then it brings to mind something else and it allows him to pursue a new idea or the idea pursues him through the lines, you know, through the verse. Um, and that, and that, so that's where the, the true poet in Shakespeare is coming out here, I think. And I can't, yes. I, I sort of imagine Shakespeare saying once more into the breach because it sounds good. Right. And it, and mm-hmm. so some, in some transcendent way begins to mean something else and suits the other themes he's pursuing. And maybe he didn't mean it to be that way, but there's some sort of subconscious genius at play or right. providence at play that allows it to works. things. It works. And knowing Shakespeare, if I had to make a guess, certainly that would have occurred <laughs> to him, but you just don't know. The guy is dead, unfortunately. But that, I mean, that absolutely works in this speech. Once more into the breach physically and and also I'd, i almost i don't want to say symbolically because it's just another meaning of the word that that secondary meaning would work here too the french have the issue of duty who has broken their duty and is the king and and is harry going to make that right or is he going to exacerbate it mm. it's interesting that you said you didn't want to you didn't want to yeah. say symbol um, <laughs> And what did you say? You didn't want to say symbol because it's just another meaning. Because it's actual a secondary meaning of the word, but yeah. that does work symbolically as it's well. A, yeah, I mean yeah. that's the complicated nature of symbolism, yeah. right? Like yes, um, there's man that we could get into. We could have mm-hmm. a long discussion about symbolism and the nature of like how words work, and in particularly right. poetic, the poetic use of them. Um, but go ahead, go ahead. Right. Well, and I. I think that this, like I said, this particular act, act three is, I mean, it's straight. If you want to read it in a very straightforward sense, you surely can. It's just building action toward the battle. You can read it that way. But I think it is 
it is just world with worlds within worlds, circles within circles. This is a very complex in terms of the meaning of the play and the questions of the play, the themes and motifs and tropes and all those things all just come uh, are very intertwined throughout this very long act three. And so it's easy. And I think that that's part of what I meant even to come full circle to the beginning of the conversation of this is an act that if you could miss in just cursory reading of this play. But if you take the time to stop and pay attention, it's very, very rich and complex. And I, I find, you know, I like to take the time to stop and pay attention. So to your point, there are just worlds within worlds happening in this, in this act specifically. And that one line, I had never thought about the secondary meaning of the word breach, but that is, I, I think that's great, David. Think about that more. Well, later on in that speech, he says, let us swear that you are worth your breeding. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I mean, that's a, that's a line. That's a key line on this play, I think, because he's yeah. saying it to the people, but it also to his soldiers, but it also seems like he's saying it to himself, right? He's, mm-hmm. um, he's, he's, you know, based on this, he seems to believe in some kind of a code, right? And so are you worth, it, 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 there's the, and the, there's the concept of, are you worth your breeding? In other words, are you worth, are, are you honoring the family you came from? Are right. you, do you belong in that family? But there's mm-hmm. also that that's even more complicated given that Henry is basically staking a claim on his mother's side, but also there's the concept of the breeding of his father who stole a crown. And is that, is he, is he King simply because his father stole the crown or does he actually belong there? There's all these complicated questions of what, at the degree to which he belongs where he is. And so what does that mean for his duty? Right. Um, but he, but it's being spoken of, in a way it's so psychologically rich because it's being spoken of to his people. It's there's something going on inside of him that is being spoken of in a speech to rouse his soldiers themselves. It's patriotic, but it's more than patriotic. It's, it's, it's him personal seems to be right? him working his own, you know, working through his own issues. Yeah. His <laughs> own, yeah. His own issues of worthiness for this thing that has been laid upon him and that he has taken up. Right. There's this constant sense of anxiety in Henry that I think shows through this entire play, even more than the earlier plays when he's wild. Right. Because at that point, it seems as though when he's Prince Hal, he's, he's like lying in wait. Right. Nobody, everyone's underestimating him. Nobody knows what he's capable of. And he seems to kind of hug that knowledge to himself in a way. Someday I'm going to be king and I'm going to show them all that this isn't who I really am. So now this is his chance. This is the time, right? Like that's, so he's got this sense of control, this careful planning and strategizing. And it, he, he seems master over it, but it's lines like that, that you pointed out. There are lines like that in every scene and every speech that reveals this anxiety of the human underneath that he is ruthlessly dominating. Right. But can't help but be true. He still is a man. And he acknowledges that in scene four, when he says underneath all the ceremony, I am but a man. And that's a key line in the play, but still, even in his knowledge of that, he's, he still has 
to be the king. And there's just this constant sense of like a nail biting, teeth clenching anxiety that I, I sense from this man throughout the play. There's, it's really interesting to me how little he actually speaks. Even in this mm-hmm. act, I think he's got basically the two long speeches and maybe one other little bit, right? Um, mm-hmm. with, the, with the messenger, I guess, and maybe with, with when Bardolph is getting punished. But but he really doesn't have conversations with people, right? I mean, most of his yeah. stuff is kind of mono, like monologue type stuff, right? <laughs> he, right. He soliloquizes. Solilo- solilo- it's a soliloquy. Soliloquy. <laughs> He's soliloquizing. What's the word? <laughs> Soliloquizing. soliloquizing but he only has one soliloquy and it's an act four well i know but, the, but, but they, there's the long monologue. passages yeah right. he is I mean, kind I, of mo- yes ceremonizing like that's that's it right he's constantly has to project he has to handle things he's got to get stuff done and he's got to make an impression while he's doing it all the time and and you sense like to me i that read that's a sort of sad thing that he's yes. not having this convers that he doesn't have conversations with people. He right. gives he gives threats and he gives speeches. And right. in those speeches, and I said soliloquizing, I know they're not soliloquies, but right. in some ways they have this sort of tone of a soliloquy. Like well, he could be really yeah. speaking to himself as much as he's giving a speech to the to everyone else around him. I think that's really insightful, David. I've never thought about that before, but you're right. He because we've learned in Act Two that he can't have conversations, right? They will come back to bite him. These people will sell him to the French and he they'll betray mm, him, mm, yeah, right? There's constantly yeah. hanging over his head. If I confide in anyone, the result is three traitors losing their head and my crown is at stake and my mm. friendships are gone. So like, he's owned that, like he knows that. So you're exactly right. There is this sense of... Like almost in your mind, you picture when he starts talking, everything goes dark and he's just, it's just him with a spotlight on him hmm. saying whatever he needs to say to be the king. But you're right. It's not a conversation ever. People don't even respond. They just do what he says. I think for the first time in a long time that I've read this or thought about this play, whether it was watching a performance or whatever, I'm getting a sense of the weariness you know, yes. the, the weary is the head that bears the crown type concepts, yes. those sort of loneliness. I think I feel sympathy for Henry in a way, maybe not sympathy, but feel, I don't know. It's hard to say you feel sorry for a, a man with that much power, but I feel sorry for him or something. Empathy, I don't know. In a way that I never, that I haven't yet before. Um, right. Do, and I feel like I'm, I judge him less in some ways. Maybe mm-hmm. that's, I mean, I've probably been more on his side, maybe not as much on his side as you, but maybe more so than a lot of people. Um, but I don't think I've ever thought about it like I feel sorry for him or like I sense this loneliness in him. And I, and that's the thing that I'm noticing in a lot of these lines, especially the lines that have double meaning, that there is a sense of, um, there is a sense of aloofness in him, but right. out of necessity. But that aloofness for me is coming across much more in sort of a sorrowful way than it ever has before. Well, and I, I think to speak to that, David, I, (laughs) this is why I love these Henry plays. This one in particular with the idea of the mirror, which I have this whole theory that we'll get to about the Dauphin and the mirror of Christian Kings is I, this, 
idea that I've talked about over the past couple of weeks that you and I have discussed, that if he is the mirror of Christian of a Christian king, the very mirror of Christian kings is the line. So, what does a mirror is constantly reflecting the observer. That's the definition of a mirror. So, in looking at Henry, we see ourselves, our own assumptions and experiences with the burdens of leadership and what that means. So, I am willing to bet the farm that one of the reasons I see Henry so sympathetically is because my husband is the CEO of a company, right? So, that, I know that. As I read it, I said it to Scott in the car yesterday, I read this because, this way because of you, that I think is, I'm, I mean, I, this is not my time to delve into the mysteries of David Kern, but as like, that's true. I'm sure for you, as you learn, as you grow as Scott does, and we all do like in the burdens of leadership, we see something different in, in these history plays in the question of what makes a king and what makes a man Hmm. that I think is some of what Shakespeare's getting, what these plays get to in talking about Henry as a mirror. Hmm. We, we cast judgment when we don't understand what leadership is, right? Then it's just this, this is how leadership is failing me. This is how I don't understand, you know, when we don't understand the moral ambiguities of what it means to lead, if you can take a city by manipulating and lying versus slaughtering, is that right or wrong? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? And I, I, that's the, that goes back to what I was saying earlier about the imagination thing too, right? Yes. Because the, the key to empathy is imagination, right? Yes. And so if we, you know, if people can, if you rhetorically, if Shakespeare can get us to imagine what, what it's like to be in someone's shoes, I mean, that's the beautiful thing about a story, right? That allows us to be empathetic because of what the way it plays on our imagination allows us to to think of what it's to be in someone else you know the, the to walk in someone else's shoes so to speak to to borrow the overused you know m- metaphor right i don't know if that's right. i think that's what you're getting at though right it is exactly yeah. what i'm getting at that it's very easy to cast judgment if we think about leadership is very black and white you always just do the right thing right yeah to judge right. henry yeah Right. Yes. Yes. So, which, which is always about how we see the leaders in our own lives and our own roles, right? When we have to make the hard decisions like Henry does in this play, I mean, I, I, I think you can still be a great leader and judge him and find him wanting, mm-hmm. but you're going to see it differently than you do if you're, say, a 16-year-old, <laughs> you know, high school student who's never had to face some of those questions then it's just my parents are mean to me so i don't like this guy either well, right that's, so <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about shakespeare right yes because a lesser work or a lesser artist doesn't allow for the various perspectives to be spoken to or spoken through as meaningfully right right um it's just not that's not there that, that kind of like isn't available canvas fought wise <laughs> right if that right makes sense. It totally does. And that isn't to say that, you know, people who are, who have the burden of leadership are going to be sympathetic to Henry. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying it that, that the play opens up, it, it mirrors our own assumptions, this play in particular, and this character in particular, along with Falstaff, I think the two of them are just this 
duo that just challenge people. And we have these visceral reactions to them as characters that somehow you can't quite get on top of. Like I, I can't quite overcome my own sympathy because of my own experiences no matter how hard I try to look at it just in election, I'll think to myself, well, I'm just going to really try to not see him sympathetically. And like, I can't do it. And I think that that's true for people who dislike him too. And that's perfectly valid because that's how Shakespeare wrote him. So I'm not defending that necessarily. I'm just saying I just as much as anybody look at this man as a mirror of my own personality and experiences. Hmm. I feel like this brings us back to this concept of what delights us. Hmm. Yeah. In some ways, because I think that we can't separate. I mean, we can, it's best for us to spend as much time just looking at the work of art for, for what it is. Right. Like mm-hmm. to, for like sort of a truly literary reading. But the, but the wonderful thing about art is that it shines back at us. Right. It is that. Mirror. Yes. That, yes. that it allows us to not just look at the work of art for what it is, which we should try to do, but it also shows us who we are. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and part of that is by who we have sympathy for, right? Like if, if we're self-aware enough to recognize, well, why do I feel this way towards this, towards this person in this, in this story? Right. Um, and I, you know, it's, it, and sometimes that can be, it shows us that we have sympathy because of, we have a similar temptation as a character or it could be that we have experienced something similar um but that doesn't you know i don't think that that makes our it 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 doesn't it doesn't in some ways it it validates our own um Hmm. i don't know exactly how to say what i'm trying to I'm thinking here since I haven't thought about it before. It's just, this is a new thought for me in some ways. It validates our own. Um, I don't know if validates is the word. I don't know what I'm trying to say exactly. Um, there's something, there's something very valuable about, uh, just about that way that it, that I'll just leave it at that. There's something very valuable about the way that it shines back at us. And so, yes, we should spend time looking at the work of art as a work of art. We should spend time doing a literary reading, so to speak. But we shouldn't dismiss the things that it's showing us about ourselves, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. We, should, we should read it, not with just with open eyes for the work itself, but also with the eyes to see what the work is telling us and revealing us about who we are. Does that make right. sense? Is that, is that a Absolutely. fair way of putting it? Yes, I that I, I think that's the only way. Person, but I think that that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. Well, I think that's the only way literature can change us. Otherwise, we're just scholars, right? Mm-hmm. Which that I, I'm not here just to know the most about literature, <laughs> right? right? Or debate my own pet theory about Henry V or or whatever it is that we're reading. It that that's entertaining to me, but that's not going to change me or disciple me. And that's what we're here for, right? If, as the Bible says, all things are ours, the great tradition of knowledge is ours so that it can be transmuted into wisdom in Mm. virtue in our lives. And the only way that happens is if we humbly let it get to our hearts, not just our minds. Mm. But, 
But the other danger is then to read just emotionally, Mm -hmm. right? And to be like, just, I'm just reacting to the story. It's Mm -hmm. not doing a work in me. I'm not engaging my mind. I'm just feeling. Mm -hmm. So one of the, so it, it, neither of them are. The word you use there, reacting, I think is an important distinction. Yes. Yes. Like it's just happening to you and you're, and, and, and you're viscerally like, no, I don't like this story because I don't, I don't like stories about what I don't like stories about war or I don't like adultery. So I'm not going to read Gatsby and which is something a person actually once told me for real. Like they told an adult woman told me that she would not read Gatsby because it was, she didn't, she, she wouldn't read anything with adultery in it. So so on the one hand, I kind of feel like I'm not going to, like, it's not really my place if someone feels like, right. To like if that, that's fine. If that's, if that's how you feel like led, I suppose, you know, it's not, but on the other hand, that's a complicated statement you're saying. Right. Well, and again, <laughs> that's really that sense. That? Exactly. There's that sense of if, if, it, if a story is going to be traumatizing you don't I mean, don't enter into it. We don't need like literary PTSD, but that there's, Mm-hmm. There is that that danger of either I'm going to read entirely emotionally and let myself just react, or I'm going to read entirely intellectually and it isn't going to touch my heart. But there's somewhere in there that yeah. we're transformed by these things, and that's the place I want to 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 cultivate a space to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think that the only way to really for that really to happen for the mirror really to shine back at us for us really to see it is for us to actually read closely you just, if you just do the surface read then you really are sort of basing it on some kind of impulsive reactionary response to it most of the time as a whereas reading closely it allows you to do the literary reading but it also allows you to be very contemplative you know it allows you to, to enter into the poetry of the work itself and the poetry of it is where i think the change happens when the poetry of the work that when you're contemplating the poetry of the work the way to when you're po- when you're when you're contemplating the connections between ideas between words um, when you're thinking in in terms of the sort of um when you're making associations between things and you're lo- and you're identifying echoes, that's where the change can happen, and that doesn't happen without reading closely. So both of those things occur by actually spending time in the work and not for and first observing with the things that are actually there. Right. Yes. I think. Right. <laughs> I agree. Well, and I think these things can speak. These books can speak directly into certain situations in our lives, and I can give you. I can give you an example of that. Last year, we had a situation in which at my husband's job at, at his company, there was somebody at the company who committed a very, very grave personal and professional betrayal. Very, very serious. And Scott and I had to decide what to do about it. It was, it was legal. There were legal ramifications for what this person had done. Mm-hmm. But he was a, a friend so and a colleague. So we were just torn up about this and we were looking in scripture and we're praying all of these things. And I was very moved by the speech about mercy in the merchant of Venice. And Scott was remembering um, in the scene in Les Mis when the priest gives Jean Valjean the silver that he had stolen. And those were very meaningful connections to us as we looked into how to deal with this situation. 
right? They guided us. And it's not a one-to-one correlation. You know, mm-hmm. we're not right. the priest in Les Mis, but they, they had captivated our imaginations to the point you made earlier and, the, and, and awakened a desire in us to imitate that particular virtue because mm-hmm. the story was so powerful and formative that they were, we were not alone in that. And there's a whole lot of complicated things, but that's what stories do. Right, they they nourish that part of us that makes decisions about our lives, mm. and 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 give us situations that are complicated that then we can come back and rely on. Henry V has a lot to say about what it means to be a leader, whether you're going to imitate that or not, or cast judgment on it, or like that. But we can all learn from that in the individual situations of our lives, and that I think has to mean that we're looking beyond a literary meaning or a literary reading of it. It doesn't mean we can't do a literary reading, but if we just stop there, there's, mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. so much more that these books can have to offer. I mean, why write them if we're just talking about decoding? Right, right, yeah. And I think when a writer, like anyone who's written stories or movies or poetry, you know, you don't write for the people who are going to decode, right? Like. Mm-hmm. I, you, you, that's valuable for the people who are trying to understand the place of the work itself in the greater um, tradition, I think. Right. And also just to understand the kind of nuances of the work itself. But great writers aren't, I think, looking forward to the day when people are going to, I mean, as Hemingway said, when people are just going to, you know, sort of identify all the themes and everything in their work. They're trying to create an experience, right? You're trying to, you're trying to capture the imaginations of your readers. And if there's enough there that those things can be discussed, that's great because it means it's going to last. But that's mm-hmm. not, I think, the primary, the primary goal of most writers. Right. Or artists of any kind, right? Even, a, right. even I think someone who's in painting or writing a, a hymn, you know, what we're after is we're after a transcendent, we're after producing a transcendent experience of some kind. And that's why it's so hard to do. Yes. If, if, if we could all just identify the formula, we could say we could all do it, right? But the great ones I can, can use the formula to create that transcendent experience. Right. And so, you know, that's the difficulty of it. That's why Shakespeare is Shakespeare and I'm me. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. Well, and Shakespeare's funny too. It isn't just all this like Right, and high. I'm not. I get it, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> okay, well, I don't know whether I should keep talking. About no, yeah, go ahead. I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so this, like in the midst of all of this high drama in this act, right? Then you have this random scene all in French, which if you're, again, this is one of those, as I was looking at this, reading it this morning um, to review for the podcast, I was thinking, this is, I, I don't read French. Do you, do you speak, do you know French? Uh, no, I do not. Yeah, me neither. So I don't actually know all the things that are said, but it's a really funny scene. And in this whole uh, act, it kind of goes to this like high drama down to low drama, low comedy. So in this particular scene for the people who might be a little confused by this, who are following along in this scene, princess Catherine uh, 
is she's the French princess and she's been offered to Henry as a bride and he's turned it down, but that'll come up again later. Um, so she, she knows that she might, she tells her lady in waiting, you know, I might have to marry the English king. So I should learn English. And she asks her lady in waiting to teach her some English. So the lady in waiting teaches her names for different body parts, including the word foot and gown, which she mispronounces uh, as cown. And those two words in English sound like French ob- sexual obscenities. <laughs> so it's just a whole scene to set up a dirty joke. That's it. That's entirely what that whole scene is. It's to introduce the princess um, and to set up a really foul and disgusting dirty joke by the end of it. So we're not talking all the time about high art. You're also talking about some, you know, Shakespeare had his vulgar moments. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I think that, you know, because he's good at what he does, those things also, that also can do other things besides set up the joke and introduce Absolutely. the princess, you know, um, it's essentially that, but because he actually knew what he was doing, it also is in keeping with many of the other themes. And also it's, uh, giving another face to the sort of between space between the armies, you know, there's another thing up for grabs, so to speak. Right. Yeah. You're right about that. There's some, another object of desire. And of course it's a very masculine play. So all of a sudden you have a couple of female characters that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, the only other female character is the was what Pistol's wife. Um, yeah, Mistress Quickly, mm. who is a another object of sexual desire, right? Because she's she runs a brothel. Yeah, and the, and then which which of course is this uh, this sense of desire is is, is the crown. This, these kingdoms are also desirable. That's the real thing that they're after, and they're after it very aggressively. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're kind of, it's kind of a no holds barred thing on each side. Um, I kind of, but you kind of get the sense that it's all sort of, they're all feeling a little guilty about the whole thing. <laughs> right. Which we get, we get at in, in act four a little bit more. We should probably begin to think about wrapping this up. Is there anything specifically about this act that you'd like to, to touch on um, anymore? I mean, we're going to, obviously we've got the scene with the, uh, with the French nobleman mm-hmm. questioning, uh, the French prince's, the fresh prince's, uh, you know, <laughs> his actual bravery, the degree to which he's actually a good soldier and how much he's just talk, which of course is in contrast with Henry. I mean, there's so much going on in all of these scenes and there are so many scenes. We can't talk in detail about everything right now. So if there's something we skip over, please do ask a question about it. And we will try to get to that in our Q&A episode in a couple of weeks. But is there anything you'd like to add here as we wrap up this episode for this week and move on to Act 4 next week? Sure. Well, I was... I wanted to say my my mirror theory about the Dauphin. It's mm-hmm. really quick. So in this scene, you find out in scene seven of act three, you find out that the Dauphin's just kind of a foolish fop is the word that was used in the in that I have written down in my notes here, copied from Asimov's um, Guide to Shakespeare. Hmm. So he's kind of shallow. He reveals himself as being uh, pretty shallow here, especially in his, all of his talk about his horse, in which there are more foul and dirty, disgusting jokes. Um, but he, uh, what I think 
might be happening in this particular scene is really just that the Dauphin underestimated Henry because, again, he had heard that he had this wild youth. And so, was seeing in Henry a mirror of himself. He's yet another person who cannot see Henry beyond looking at himself mirrored in the rumors that he's heard about him. But we do find out that Dauphin's actually a worthy opponent. He is he's a good fighter. He is a man of action, uh, but he is in many ways a fool. And that's revealed mm-hmm. in this scene. And it hasn't as much, there's been a bit of a question mark around this character so far. Um, he's, a, he's a warrior. He's a good soldier, but he's foolish and shallow, which is exactly what he thought Henry was. Mm. Mm. in sending him the tennis balls. Yeah, good job with that. So, um, so that's, my, that's my final thought. Mm. Well, we will be back next week. I mean, like I said, there's so much to talk about here. And we, we talked about a few things in very closely and we talked about a few things kind of big picture, which I think probably is, what is the most common thing that happens up happening on these shows. Uh, so um, hopefully... If there's if there are questions that you really want us to talk about, please do you know email me at closereadspodcast at gmail dot com or find us on the Instagram page, Twitter page, or Facebook group, and we will um, get to as many as we can in a couple of weeks when we talk about that. Heidi, thanks so much for doing this again. Yeah, this is fun. It's a great play. It's really mm-hmm. Shakespeare was not so bad. You know, he didn't. He he wasn't. He wasn't. Yeah, he was, he was okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to give him too much credit. Like maybe six. I don't think we There's probably like six of them or something. There might be like one person who was at least better than him. So we don't want to say he's the best ever, but you know, we got to leave some room for Homer. Maybe Moses. I don't know. But Moses. Good point. Thank you for reminding me about Moses. <laughs> God. God speaking. Inviting, mm-hmm. you know, but. Anyway, yeah, thanks so much. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, your comments and your conversation, all those kind of things are so great. We, we really appreciate your uh, participating and uh, making this show uh, so fun to do and the conversation so rich. So thanks as always. Uh, so for Heidi White and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast and the Cersei Institute, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Happy reading. And we will talk to you in 2019. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.